You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are finishing, well, culminating tonight. We have one more, actually, next Sunday. So you can say good morning to me then, okay? Next Sunday, we're going to do God with us as well, this series to finish off the Christmas season. And tonight, though, we are kind of, it's kind of the culmination of it, because we are looking at the theological term that we've talked about over the weeks called the incarnation. Have you ever heard of that before? In, in. Then carna, like carnitas, do you like to eat? I like to eat. In the fleshness. God in the flesh. And it comes actually, um, comes out in the Gospel of John chapter 1. Um, but what you can see is, uh, Dan, why don't you show them, I've got the Bible notes up. If you want to look at the U version of the Bible, you can actually get the notes with these little quotes and stuff, you know. What I say is not so great, but there are some good quotes. <laughs> not just the Bible, but some good Christian authors and others that have quoted different things. And you might just ponder some of them over this Christmas season. Um, but we're going to start with John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Uh, John's Gospels got some of the simplest language with the most profound thoughts. I don't know if you realize that. So that simple phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or in the Greek, I'm not going to make you repeat this or memorize this. You got close. Kai ho logos, sarks, agenito, kai, eskenosin, and hemin. And that is, and the logos, sarks, Flesh became, and Eskenosin tented or tabernacled among us. Simple sentence, revolutionary, absolutely shocking. When the original hearers of John's gospel read this or heard this phrase for the first time, I am sure they were astonished, jaws dropped, and they were like, what, what, what did he just say? No one had thought about this before. No one had conceived of it. No one had um, imagined what John wrote in that simple sentence saying, the word became flesh. <clears throat> Complete surprise. Now, prior to this, in all human history, if God would show up in any way, because the word was God and the word was with God at the beginning of this passage that Paul talks about. So if God does show up, man, Watch out, scary, frightening, uh, power, glory, terror. Almost every human being that ever encountered the living God prior to this was scared witless and said things like Isaiah, woe is me. And I think that's probably a nice English translation for what I would have been saying. It, woe is me, I am dissolved. Basically, I am a pile of, I'm falling apart, man. I can't handle this. Whoa. 
Okay? That is what it's like to, and, and all Isaiah saw at that moment was the trail of his robe, the end of it. He didn't get the whole picture. Anybody, God even said, you try to see me, you're dead. You're dead. So when he was approachable, he still kind of remained hidden, you know? In fact, behind a curtain. And once a year, the high priest could maybe come in, and boy, he better go through all the rituals and purification rites and make sure everything was fine. And even when he did all of the things properly and had a sacrifice for himself and for the people, they still tied a little rope around his leg. I don't know if you know this. So that when he went in, if he died, because, <laughs> you know, something, oops, happened, they could just pull him out and nobody else had to go in. That's as close as you could get to God. Now, that was kind of from the Jewish perspective. Others, though, thought in the Greco-Roman world, why would God want to become flesh? I mean, come on. We don't even want to. We think this stuff, it falls apart. Have you noticed? Your body keeps falling apart. And it decays and time wears us down. Why would God, the infinite God, want to come into this finite world? Why would the God who's timeless and above it all want to be bound into time and deal with all of this stuff? Why in the world would God do that in the first place? No God would do that. The gods just don't even care. They stay away. We talk about them, but really. So... When John said that phrase, it was revolutionary. And when the Jews heard that, they knew that that word, you know, John didn't use just any words for word, the simple words he used. He used very specific. And like I used that word, hologos, the logos, the logic, the word. When the Jews heard that, they understood, oh, God communicates, God speaks. God is one who, though he's transcended and above it all and beyond it all, still speaks to us in a way that we can comprehend. He, it can be known. So they understood that. Now, of course, they realized from the beginning when God spoke, things happened. He spoke and the world was created. His Word was his will in action, and it accomplished things. But over time, instead of seeing this wonderful story of the word being spoken by God to communicate to us, it was turned into, well, the codified rules and laws, like an owner's manual that we have to follow. And they counted 613 over time to figure out exactly how to follow them and if they just did it good enough and right enough. And so the word almost became a barrier, a way to just try to understand enough of God to keep him off my back. You know, I've done all that stuff, God, so leave me alone. You're scaring me. For the Greeks, the word logos was crucial to their philosophers and others. They understood that the, all of creation was not a chaos, but a cosmos, that it had a plan, that it had a logic behind it all, that it all kind of fit together. And the goal of life 
whether you studied the philosophy or science or anything or nature itself, was to understand how everything flowed and how everything connected together by that logos, by that word, by that logic. And connecting all that together, then you could be in harmony with the universe and have a logic life. So when God speaks through John these words, the Jews all of a sudden were shocked because, wait a minute, you're telling me, John, that to get to know this one true God, I should get to know this one true person? Yes. If you really want to know who God is and what God is about, if you want to know his heart, if you want to know what he's communicating to you, the person, the one in the flesh, standing right before you is the one to know personally in an intimate relationship. Not a bunch of information, not a lot of facts, not a lot of rules, but personally know. And to the Greeks who are saying, well, you know, if we just, you want to get to know how you can be in harmony with the universe, how everything works, what everything is for, what your purpose and meaning in life is, where your direction in life is going, get to know this one person, the word who has become flesh. Now, you know, that's ra radical, revolutionary, that God takes on physical nature, human nature, human understanding, human everything. That's Christmas. That's what this is about tonight. That's why a couple billion people celebrate and yet, at the same time, I have a feeling somehow it doesn't make that much of a difference for too many people, even those who get the facts and know the things and have. The penny just hasn't quite dropped. Have you heard that phrase before? You stick the penny in the machine and you got to jiggle it a little to get it to fall. You know, maybe then, it, oh, okay. Now, it, the logic hasn't been put together. It just hasn't made sense it hasn't, there wasn't an aha moment yet. So tonight, what we're going to do, instead of uh, just talking about it, we're going to look at three implications of the incarnation. That God became flesh, and the great impact that was. Okay? We're going to try to go through them pretty quickly, um, but I think these are important. Okay? So this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christianity thing, this whole Christmas thing, comes down to how it impacts the world. It makes a difference for everything. The first is this. We have infinite comfort in the face of suffering. That's the first impact. You know, I don't know if you've known people. I know some right now that are going through some really serious situations. And others who are struggling and others who are just untold suffering and struggle and questions in their lives. And it's so easy when that happens, is to question the goodness of God and to go like, why, why in the world would God allow such a thing to be going on? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe you know somebody who has. Maybe somebody has come to you and asked the question, how in the, I don't understand how do all these bad things happen and why is it so difficult? And, you know, for a lot of Christians... That's one of the tough questions, by the way, one of the ultimate questions to answer. <clears throat> and we do actually have some very deep, 
profound understanding of this and a deep answer. We'll get to that. But most Christians, when they see that, what I notice as well, too, is we do our Christianese. Do you know what that is? We kind of say some trite little phrase. It's another way of avoiding the real subject and struggling with it. And it's something like, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> or, you know, you just got to trust him. You know, I'm sure he has a good reason for it. And you walk away. You know how infuriating that can be and how shallow that is? And the answer really is what we're talking about tonight. It's the incarnation. It's Christmas. It's not just a sentimental time of the year. But actually, Jesus Christ becoming flesh, becoming human, becoming vulnerable, becoming a little child, a small little package in a manger, is answering our deepest needs for an answer to human suffering. And no other real religion or philosophy in the world has come with a deeper answer than these. It's fascinating, too. There's a philosopher named Albert Camus. Any of you ever studied him or heard about him in college? No? So much for our humanities these days. <laughs> Albert Camus, who is not, <laughs> not a great apologist for Christianity. In fact, I don't think, you know, but he at least understood the implications of what Christianity was saying. And this is what he wrote about this whole thing. He said, the God-man, Jesus, suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end. Despair included the agony of death. Jesus becoming human meant Jesus became killable. Jesus becoming human meant Jesus suffering and understanding it personally himself. Coming in the flesh means anything that you've ever faced, Jesus is already facing it too. You see, he's not just partially human. He doesn't just appear to look human, but never really experiences humanity. He's not some hologram or some avatar. He's fully human in every way. More human in some ways, I think, than even I am. Because, you know, me, I want to avoid suffering. I like to move away from it. I like to uh, say nice things and step slightly away so I don't have to experience it with you. You know, my human nature is not, oh, of course. But Jesus' human nature was to fully embrace it, to engulf it, to experience it himself. So if God came to earth and himself involved himself so fully in hum the human predicament, and that he himself horrendously, completely and fully experienced human suffering and death, I might not be able to answer why you are going through what you're going through. I might not be able to tell you why that is your experience, but I can tell you what the answer is not. It cannot be that God doesn't care. It cannot be that God is not involved. It cannot be that God is apathetic towards anything in your life because Jesus himself suffered. 
So um, that's kind of an intellectual level. But emotionally and existentially, too, when the word becomes flesh, it also gives us a lot of hope. The writer to Hebrews puts it this way. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Now, I recall um, over 20 years ago, my, I think a year after our marriage, my father died suddenly at age 67. He had been teaching for 37 years. That's a lot of suffering in itself, I know. <laughs> for all the teachers, I just really I highly um, honor teachers, and I just am amazed at what they go through sometimes, right? But anyways, he suddenly died, and I was out in, a pastor in California at the time, and I didn't even get to get home before he had passed away. It was so quick. But I can remember at the time of visitation when hundreds of his students came through because he had taught so long in this small town. He taught generations of students in that town came through that a lot of people well-intentioned said some really lame things to me, <laughs> you know? And they were being good and I was just, you know, I, I, you understand, you go, thank you so much. But I do recall one person out of like 500, I know, one person came up to me and he talked about how my dad had taught him and how important that was. And then he shared not to, to compete with me, not to like one up me or anything, but he said, yeah, you know, just two months ago, my father passed away. And immediately there was a bond with him that it's like you understand. When well-meaning people come up to you and say, you know, oh man, I just, and they try to give you advice when you're going through something, it's so easy to just go like, you gotta be kidding me, you have no idea what I'm going through. But the incarnation says, you've got somebody who's gone through it, 10 times worse in some ways. He fully understands what it's like to be human. When you meet somebody who's gone through so much, and he's not one-upping it on you. He's not trying to do anything. He's just trying to comfort you and be there for you and with you in it. Isn't that amazing? How much comfort you can have? There is no dark place that you are in or have been in that God has not already been there. You know, you might say, oh, are you facing death? He did too. Well, I feel like God has abandoned me. Yeah, that happened to Jesus. <laughs> well, I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and he's not answering my prayer. Jesus, too, didn't have his prayer answered the way he wanted. Do you get it? That's why Corey Ten Boom, she was a Holocaust survivor because she, as a Christian, harbored uh, Jews in her home in the Netherlands and her family was arrested, thrown into the Buchenwald prison camp where her father died and her sister died. She survived. And afterwards, she says this, there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. So on an emotional level, God is addressing, maybe not answering informationally why you're going through what you're going through, but he's addressing you by respecting you, loving you, and being there with you in the midst of it and going to bring you through it. I loved what Edward Shalito, um, 
wrote, he wrote a poem, and this is the last verse of it. He saw all this carnage from World War I, and afterwards, he just didn't know how to minister to some of the people that were coming back from the front lines. And he wrote this in his poem, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. So we have infinite comfort in the midst of suffering. And secondly, we're going to go these a little faster. We have a powerful incentive to serve. You know, charity in this world and in the United States, I just always kind of find it funny. So we have Black Friday before, uh, right after Thanksgiving, right? Then we have Cyber Monday, and then it's Giving Tuesday. Do you get the, you know what happens first? I spend all the stuff I want, I get everything I want, and then I'm thinking about giving a little to whatever on Tuesday after I figured everything else out. It's amazing. Charity is the way that it works. It's expendable income for most people. And we like it that way because it doesn't really involve us that much. But that's not the incentive we have as Christians and followers of Jesus to give. He doesn't just give a little. He doesn't give expendable things. He doesn't give some. He doesn't just, he gives all in himself. So the incentive we get, Paul uh, profoundly writes this in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So God is not a bystander. And he doesn't just give out of surplus. He gives all of himself and his son, Jesus Christ. So you can give, and a lot of people do. They give to the point where it's comfortable. It doesn't hurt anything. It's not hard. Um, it's easy. It's nice. It's charity. Or as Christians, you can give like Jesus to the point where it actually does hurt. Where it goes beyond your comfort level, where it's like, Wow, I'm going to have to give up at least, or I'm not going to be able to do everything I want. But that's when we understand the powerful incentive we have to serve and to give. Because that's the way God gave. Arthur C. McGill wrote this, Those who love in the name of Jesus Christ serve the needs of others willingly, even to the point of being exposed in their own neediness. I love that. You don't go like, wait a minute, I'm only going to give because I, if I give any more, then all of a sudden, no, you give because you need to give. You give because they need you to help. And you give even if it puts you in a position of all of a sudden being needy. Powerful incentive to serve because we know that's how God works. And there are people, you know, they'll come to church and don't want to get involved. You know, kind of bystander Christians. Um, I believe they're very sincere in their faith, but I think they're misunderstanding how the incarnation is calling you to get involved. Because um, it's easy to just be around, to just uh, kind of show up, enjoy, walk away. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? He calls us to not just show up, 
to be fully present, to fully give, and fully invest in the lives of other people. The incarnation says it's time to get vulnerable like I did. And it's messy, let me tell you. Um, as a pastor over 30 years, I see uh, my life is messy, everybody else's life is messy. When you get involved with people, it's not easy at times, it's inconvenient, and boy, isn't it worth it. It's just wonderful. The one aspect that actually changed the world in Christianity and the Roman culture that was power-hungry and amoral and polytheistic and conquesting and opulent and the end-all and be-all in their eyes, the, Roman, the thing that changed, Christ, that changed the world about Christianity was not their involvement in the politics of the day. It was not that Christians went out and protested and demanded better rules and laws. It was the fact that they loved each other. And they sacrificed for each other. And they served the people during the plagues because nobody else would. And they risked their lives for the sake of others. The, my, how they love one another is what changed the world. B.B. Warfield kind of put it this way in a Victorian sermon. Um, I think it still resonates. He said, he was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there will we be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness for, of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means... Many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means richness of development. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of love, so, of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. Notice I said a powerful incentive to serve. I didn't say a comfortable incentive to serve. Okay? We have comfort in the midst of suffering, a powerful incentive to serve, and finally, a realistic hope that lasts. So the phrase, kai hologos sarks egenato kai eskenosen en himen. That word eskenosen, and the word sarks flesh became and tented or tabernacled among us. In fact, it brings up the whole idea of that tabernacle I kind of mentioned in the Old Testament. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year with a rope tied around his leg, with the blood all over him to make sure just to kind of, on the Day of Atonement, he could do that. That's as close as anybody ever got to God's presence. Why was that such a problem? And why did they have to go through all of that stuff? It goes all the way back, actually, to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 where Adam and Eve created in God's image to love and to image his love to this world, to live together in harmony and to cultivate the world for the sake of his glory, decided, nah, we want to do it for ourselves, ate the forbidden fruit, and then all of a sudden they're kicked out of the garden. 
And I don't know if you know in that story in Genesis 3, but there's an angel at the edge of the garden with a flaming sword. Anybody try to get back in? You're dead. We have one who's gone back in. And he died. And that's why we have hope. In fact, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, it says the temple of that, cur uh, the curtain temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is, God ripped it open from the top to the bottom, not some human being just try to open it up from the bottom to the top. But God ripped it open. That means you have full access to God's presence in your life through this person of Jesus Christ, through his bloody death for you. That's hope. Because it was God who did it for you. It's not based on how good you've been, how many of the rules you kept. Did you go through the rituals properly? What do people think of me? How smart am I? None of those things. That's hope because it's not based on human beings. It's based on the one perfect human being who is also God. That's hope. You know, a lot of people always try to put their hope in humanity. And we get those stories at the end of the 6 o'clock news or 6.30 news that show the cuteness of this or that wonderful aspect of you. I love them, but my hope is not in humanity because the other 29 minutes of the news shows what humanity really is like, right? And other people seem to be putting their hope in if we just get this right, if we just do this, if we just do... You know, people put their hope in science and technology. It's going to solve all our problems. And what I've noticed is science and technology is wonderful, but human problems just use science and technology. Um, we just treat each other poorly in a new way through technology. But this one hope we have, because God has chosen. Why? I mean, I think the Greeks were right to say, why would God want to be involved in this mess? In the, the midst of this finite world, why would the infinite be involved in the finite? Would, would the timeless get involved in time? Why would the perfect deal with the imperfect? Why would the holy, the holy other, get involved in the messy and the broken? And the answer is simply love. For God so loved the world. So that's what you have this Christmas. You have a hope. Realistic. You don't have to be anything special. You don't have to be perfect. You, you can be broken and struggling. You can be sinful and two-faced. It's still your hope. And you have a powerful incentive to serve. And you have an infinite comfort in anything that you're going through. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. We are amazed tonight that you chose willingly and freely to give up everything to become one with us. To be our hope to be our comfort, to be our purpose in living. We thank you, Lord, for your incarnation. We ask that you would move us
that we would be those who love one another as you have loved us, that we would be those who live for one another as you have lived for us, that we would receive you as the gift of gifts, and that we would share you as the gift to everyone around us. So bless us this night, O oh Lord, as we now uh, will continue just to worship you and uh, to celebrate the joy of the incarnation. And so, Lord, just in a simple song, we're going to offer our lives to you. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>